Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Rethinking Trauma and Transition. And today we are privileged to be have our guest on is um, Kim Bond. And would you like to introduce yourself, please, Kim? Hi, good morning. Um, my name is Kim Bond. I'm the Head of Development for NAPAC, which is the National Association for People Abused in Childhood. I've been there about four years now, just over four years. And I also recently completed a doctorate with um, survivors as stakeholders, so looking at um, how people recover and heal and what positive outcomes they specifically want for themselves. Thank you very much, Kim. Yeah. So, thank you for coming along. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. We've, in a number of our podcasts, we've mentioned ACEs which is that adverse childhood experiences. So that's really your area of expertise. And yes. we thought it would be really helpful for our listeners if we went into that in a bit more detail to give them a bit of a wider understanding of what that means and how it is. Yeah. And it seemed like the perfect opportunity to go to somebody who's the expert in that field. So we're really looking forward to the conversations with you. No, I'm really looking forward to talking about it. It's um, I'm I'm a disguised survivor of uh, abuse and childhood and some adverse experiences myself. So it's it's quite nice being able to get to talk about these things, but in a way that's more about how other people have those experiences and those things that they might find familiar or similar, and also the things that they maybe haven't thought of before, and look at you know the how healing and recovery works and why it is to do with healing because there are injuries that happen because of those, you know, because of the stress and the trauma. And often the, the thing I like to focus on most is the hope and like what comes up, what comes next, that life after abuse, but the life after adversity, what those like transition points can be now we're adults, the kind of decisions we get to make and how positive a lot of that can be. And I'm really looking forward to, to getting to talk about it. Well, the, and this is, I think it's important for our listeners to know that this isn't going to be just a one-off. We're actually going to have a series of conversations with you because of the size of the topic and size of the impact. Because I really appreciate that as well. So many different experiences, not only for the child, but as the adult survivor of that experience. And some definitions as well. So people get a good understanding of what people experience, what people have gone through and be able to go, oh, maybe I've suffered with that, or I've gone through that myself. We we found that a, a lot, um, like NAPAC has a support line, and one of the most frequent questions we get asked is, was it abuse? Because it's not like that's explicitly told to us at the time. It, there's kind of a, a process of kind of recognising that those actions, those experiences were so harmful, were so wrong. So being able to talk around the definitions and kind of exemplify what those things actually mean in like everyday terms is so useful because fair enough, I've, I've done some academic work on this, but it came from wanting to understand more and make it more accessible and kind of join join up between, you know, an individual's personal lived experience and then, you know, what happens at a societal level, what happens at a policy level, and what happens in you know the support services and those conversations we have with family and friends, like what language we use, how we can talk about these things more easily. Because that's so important for you know, our own recovery and improving the protections going forward and just, you know, 
generally making things things better and safer and more positive. Is there an overarching definition of what abuse is? The, I think the best way <clears throat> the best way to kind of ex explain it and understand it is that when there is abuse, it is because of an imbalance in power and a misuse of that power. Um, that so there's, I mean, often often when I think of it, it's, it's you know there, there's an adult who's the perpetrator and child is a victim. Sometimes you know children can be perpetrators as well. But probably the, the easiest way to think of it is to think of it as the adult and the child. And you've got the, the physical power difference. Like an adult is bigger and stronger. But they also, as an adult, you know, you have access to so many more choices than a child does. A child is dependent. And so when an adult, you know, abuses their position of power and hurts a child or, you know, refuses them care, the child doesn't have the option to go and get that from somewhere else. Because there is, you know, there is that power that adult has, you know, power over that child, and understand that abuse is where that power is, you know, manipulated. It is abuse. That's probably one of the the easiest ways of understanding what what abuse is, because the nature of the abuse, what the acts actually are, or the the denial, if you like, of of, of care and support, like which you get with neglect. I find that to be the easiest way of understanding it because there's so many different types of abuse whether it's that, that physical abuse emotional abuse sexual abuse where you think about the the act that's done but it's that it's that power that's really the core of it where there is someone who is has, who doesn't get to choose and there is someone who does get to choose and they have that power to you know force their will on on someone who doesn't have the same options I mean, they, they might use threats implied or explicit or you know just have that much power they didn't have to make a threat because you know there, there isn't a way out of the situation um but that's 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 generally what it is but there, there's power that's misused and there you know instead of trust it's like the opposite of trust but, you know being in a, a trusted position they they use that trust to to you know abuse so i was wondering kim is there a reason why another child would go and abuse another child with that because they've been abused by an adult and then they see that as a normal thing they per perpetrate it on somebody else that does happen um there's, there's i mean when whether it's, it's child on child abuse it can be even more complicated because sometimes there are children who are acting out things that they've seen they are acting out things that have been done to them. And that doesn't always have to have a malicious intent. It can just be exploratory because there's there's degrees of this. There's um, what's called like exploratory play. There's, there's there also acting, exactly, there, there, there's acting out abuse. But then there is also, you know, the, the power and cruelty as well. It's, you know, it's not always easy to determine, okay, that child's acting out because they were also harmed. But you know, it doesn't stop the the you know the, the victim having been the victim of the abuse. I think one of the the difficulties, and we we hear quite a lot from people who who've experienced abuse from from peers, um, about how difficult it can be because it, the power imbalance isn't always as obvious, but it's still there. You know, especially when there there's you know 
manipulation and kind of leverage and threats and sometimes the, the abuse itself is so difficult to talk about if you don't have the language as a child you know it's, it's difficult to have the language as an adult to make a disclosure like how do you talk about these things and how do you explain what's happened and what's wrong and access that kind of help and can, it can make it really really tough to understand why that happens and like what they were actually doing and if they meant it and it's why for for a, a lot of what I look at is it's just to focus on the survivor, the, the, the victim survivor, and focusing entirely on them rather than like, the details of the, the the perpetrator, if you like, because it was still abuse that they experienced. And it can be very difficult to kind of try and work out what a perpetrator's motivations were, whatever their age. And if they're, you know, a manipulative, abusive person, it's very difficult to trust what they might tell us anyway. So focusing much more on the victim survivor, what they say, what they, you know, feel, what they need, much healthier. Is it worth taking us through, actually, the different definitions or the, the categories within ACEs and what the each adverse experience actually is because there there is a an outline for that isn't there there are outlines for it i mean i'm one of the things i i, I do when i look at uh, like like ad adversity and abuse is i try and avoid going down what i call like a diagnostic route because sometimes i mean i've, I've done it myself you know you go through the tests and you see which boxes you tick um but that can end up being quite, um, it can be quite difficult to keep that healthy because you're trying to then work out, you know, the nuances of each different experience. You end up, you know, ruminating on them more. And that's not always a healthy thing to do, especially if you don't have, you know, like a, a, like support with you and like trying to work out how bad something was but rather than how you feel about it, which is, you know, can be much more um, powerful and important. Um, I think one of the things I've, I found across all the ACEs and all the, those adverse things that happen, particularly in childhood, which you know, includes abuse, is they're all situations where you as a child don't have control of what's happening. And that across all these different things, like whether it's, you know, you've experienced you know, physical or uh, sexual abuse, whether there's someone actively harming you, or whether you know you've had family members who've been incarcerated, and then you know that like they go, and how do you understand what's happened there? That you know people can be taken away in that way when there's been bereavement. They're all things that are quite disruptive, and you don't get to choose. You don't get to you know have a say in, in what's happening, and it can be really hard to access any support especially when you're you know young because how do you explain those things in words that someone else will understand and know like what to pick up like what to pick up with you to help you understand it because it is so surreal and bizarre and extreme and I think across all all the adversities um I often try and explain it in a slightly different way to the diagnostic tools that are used when we're actually looking at like what your ACE scores are. 
I try and look at it in terms of whether it's personal or community or social, because there's like personal harms that happen to us one on one, things like that. You know, the, the physical and emotional sexual abuse that's that you know directly happening. But then there's also things that happen at a community level, and being able to understand that whilst we might not have been the direct victim, we can be a secondary victim of what's happened as well, particularly when like someone who's been trusted has been found to act in a way that's, you know, abusive or, you know, harmful. And how that can really undermine our understanding of our sort of community rules, if you like. And then on that social level, which is, you know, much broader, of course, but where just the fact that these things go on in society and we we know they're wrong and how difficult it is to come to terms with the truth of them, that kind of understanding of those, those different different levels can kind of help as well. And that's a very different reframing because it's much more to do with our emotional responses that, that complements, you know, that, 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 that diagnostic criteria and kind of like, you know, what these different, these different experiences are and how they impact us. Because there's that sort of the, the, the direct impact, but then it also does affect us at a community level and the social level as well. I'm going to, I want to pick up on that, that, element of direct impacts mm. because it strikes me that similar to like I suppose adult experience trauma actually it doesn't have to be directly impacting us for the ACE to actually impact us it can be observed and experienced through others so it's almost we are the secondary participant and observer of the action being perpetrated on another but still leaves that indelible mark and damage on us. Yes. One of the things that changed in, in UK law over the years has been the recognition that witnessing, for example, domestic violence, a child witnessing uh, domestic violence counts as abuse because of those impacts. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it was like, no, it didn't happen to me. I just saw it. But that is that's still a traumatic event. As in just because, I mean, you might not have been the, the direct target. But again, that's, it's almost like thinking about what the perpetrator was doing rather than what you're feeling. Well, that's kind of like um, police officers, when they're watching child abuse films, isn't it? They're getting the trauma from watching that as well, or reading police reports, and etc. Exactly, it, exactly that. Like in post-traumatic stress or the other contributing factors along that with just witnessing and not actually being a participant in those um, situations. Mm. And they're also feeling powerless at that time. Like, you know, they're trying to gather that evidence, but the fact that these things are happening that you know we as a society don't want to have happen and having to, like, collect the evidence to try and, you know, create some sort of justice is so in itself, though, there is trauma there. And, you know, it's what we call vicarious trauma, and there are ways to mitigate it and manage it. But you kind of have to acknowledge it exists first to be able to mitigate and manage it and be able to kind of, you know, prepare yourself as, as well as you can, knowing that, you know, reading those statements, having those conversations, looking at that evidence is going to, you know, be difficult and you know hurt it, you know it's emotionally difficult and you never know which particular 
story or incident is going to be the you know something that really gets to you I mean I've been doing this work for quite a few years and there's still you know things that get to me aside from you know any of my like personal triggers it's that there's bits that are just really get to you because you just don't want that to be someone's reality you wish that it was better it's almost like a loss of innocence in the adult isn't it as well where our experience and expectation and understanding of what we as a as a as a as a being as human is capable of areas that we really don't want it to be in and it changes how we then view our entire experience knowing that this is now possible when we when it wasn't it was maybe it was very distant it was very um far from our experience but this kind of puts it right directly into our field mm-hmm. right directly into into something that we have now witnessed that we have now even as an observer have experienced and know now to be true and possible that is wrong for us i mean this is why i think of ace that like that personal communist and and so i know it's a different way of, of thinking about these things but that kind of enables those people who do then you know witness and it recognizes how much that changes our perception of of what you know people are capable of and how awful that can be to come to recognize and how harmful that is and how unnerving that is how unsettling it is how much it really can you know eat into our sense of you know trusting people and when we know that you know there's a there's a phrase that uh, you know most people are mostly good most of the time and it's you kind of have to recognize that but whilst also you know, like you said, that the, the officers who might see a lot of these cases, if they're the specialists who are investigating, you know, those crimes, they're exposed to so much. And I think it's also really important, again, why I look at some of that, the hopeful side, and that there is recovery and that, you know, it's not like there is that life after abuse. But that the fact that there are those people who are willing to gather that evidence and do that work is so important. And it's really important that they get support as well and that recognition that this isn't in itself harmful. Like bearing witness to that kind of harm, you know, it, it it hurts the people who have to witness it as well. And that kind of goes back to those, you know, um, children who see other other abuses happening. That's a harm in, of itself. I think sometimes there's a there's a, a desire to try and kind of say, well, what happened to me wasn't so bad. We have a lot of people call our support line who are like, you know, it's my story isn't as bad as the other ones you've heard. I don't think I really deserve your support. I just saw something, you know, and recognising that actually they've been carrying that trauma for, for, you know, so many years because they didn't think they deserved any support because it didn't happen to them. So you've, you know, that that is an abusive harm too, that you still deserve support for, for that because it, it shouldn't happen. It's the sort of thing that we know society shouldn't it shouldn't be there, but you know, coming to terms with it's really hard. We've just done a podcast on um, comparisons and how unhealthy that is. The saying uh, uh, the book of the Tower of Fully Healing by Peter Walker. So read a bit about mm. that, and as he explains it in there, is it slows the progress or it doesn't help people progress in slowing. And his metaphor was. 
you've got termites in in your house and they're eating away at the porch. But hey, the neighbor's house has been eaten down by the termites. So that's yeah, theirs isn't bad as what well. theirs is worse than what mine is, even though the termites are eating the house away. Yeah. Yeah. I um when I talk about this uh, more more personally, I'll I'll do it here. Um I, I talk about shark bites. Do you know the film Jaws? Classic. And they're sitting there comparing how big the shark was that bit them, how big the scar was, how vicious it was. But they're all sitting there, you know, in this really sort of isolated, at-risk position, which we obviously know as the observer. And like they're, they're comparing those harms. And I always found that scene so fascinating. Because on the one side, it's kind of good that they're opening up about that time where they were, you know, at risk and like how they coped and what happened whilst there is also this other big threat that's obviously coming. And I've always found that that really struck from, with me when I saw that film when I was you know, still quite young. Because that idea that, you know, the way we try and explain how bad what happened to us or the fact that ours was, you know, not as bad or it was worse because, and it's like, it's not a, com- a competition. It's, and again, it's why I, I kind of, focus much more on the how you feel and how you're responding because that's like the enduring part of it is like how how you feel and we hear so much about guilt and shame and 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 things like that but someone will find it a lot harder to talk about what their experiences were and get that help to heal and recover from it if they don't think it was bad enough or counter count if they think it was so bad no one could possibly hear because they don't want to hurt someone with their story I believe. And it, yeah, I believe. Yeah, And it minimises that person's experience as well, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. Very much. And it can minimise it in the way of both them not thinking it's bad enough and them thinking that they're not, they don't deserve support because it's so bad it will hurt someone else if they tell their truth. Um, I mean, it's why I love, you know, I love NAPAC and there are services where, you know, you can, there are people you can tell. And you no, know, in confidence and anonymously, and because sometimes you just need to be able to to say the words, you know, to describe what happened in your own words, and get that off your chest, and then it can suddenly you you can focus a bit more on how you're feeling and, and what you want and what your aspirations are. You kind of have to, you know, sort of pur- purge that bit of that story, and then you can move on to you know the next steps. All the time you're carrying that, it, it can be a really heavy burden to carry, and for so many different reasons. But it's still, you know, like like talking can be so therapeutic in itself. Even if you just tell someone once, it can be completely life changing because you're not carrying that like the secret of it. That's one of the things I liked about that shark scene in Jaws. It's like they're showing those stars, they're sharing it, and it's done in like in a almost a fun way. It's, it's they're bonding with each other and it's this like funny stories almost, but it's this really horrible traumatic things that they're talking about. But they found a way of talking about it that's, I mean, yeah, there's like the competition bit's not good, but I always find it funny. They were like, well, I've also got, and I've seen that happen sometimes in like with, with, with groups of people discussing their, their adversities and their traumas. And it's, it's like that, the, the Me Too movement. It's like, oh, wow, you know, yes, me, me as well. And it kind of broke down those barriers of, well, mine wasn't as bad or mine was, you know, so bad no one can hear it when you begin to realise that 
actually there are stories that sound a bit like yours or those feelings sound a bit like what you've experienced and then you kind of rebuild that kind of sense of community as well like that connection of course with the abuse and adversity often isolates us so much because it's so extreme and it doesn't feel you know it's, it's not something that should happen but being able to connect with people can make it so much easier to then you know talk about and feel more positive again it's a big journey can i explore with you because i think sometimes when we talk about those experiences some of them are immediately obvious that people will instantly recognize and go, oh, yeah, that's definitely an adverse childhood experience. Yeah. Others, however, are much more discreet, much more subtle. And maybe there's an element of the persistence of the experience yeah. that impacts. And I think it's worth maybe, if you don't mind exploring some of those, because sometimes I think people underestimate the impact of that. Not very much. Um... This is where it kind of is it's useful sometimes being a disclosed survivor because I can give examples of, of things in a way that I wouldn't otherwise do. Um, oh, sorry, Kim. Would you mind, before you go on to that, would you give definition, let people know what disclosed and undisclosed survivor is? Oh, yes, totally. Sorry, that's one of my... One of the things I, I specifically got defined in my research, actually, because one of the things we found is that there's... When obviously NAPAC provides support for survivors of abuse. So one of the things I did when I was doing my research was kind of looking at, well, who identifies with that, that concept of being a survivor of abuse and who would access support because of that? And I found there were three, three sort of roughly definitions. They were disclosed survivors. So people that have lived experience of abuse and they recognize that that's relate, that that is their experience. Um, they may be publicly disclosed or not. Like I'm publicly disclosed, I'll I'll talk about some of my experiences publicly. Um, but they they generally they you know they've come to terms to, a, to at least to a point. They were abused. They are survivors of abuse. They might not use the term survivors. People use you know different terms depending on what they feel suits them. Some people prefer the term victim because it was a crime. Some people prefer the term thrivers because they feel they've got beyond surviving and they're thriving now. But it's that, you know, relating to that, I have lived experience of abuse, the disclosed survivors. There's also undisclosed survivors. And that includes people who are still coming to terms with the fact that what they experienced counts as abuse, which is, again, why I don't always get too caught up in some of the definitions of what happened and that, that sort of the diagnostics of it, because some people find it harder to tick those boxes and find that something like they, they don't want to engage with that kind of conversation, which is fine. It's a personal choice. Um, but there'll be people who are both coming to terms with whether, whether what they experience is abuse. There'll be people who are personally come to terms with that. They might choose to tell a couple of people, but they don't want it to go beyond that. They, you know, there's, there's a, a line for them. Um, and then there's also supporters of survivors who may or may not have lived experience of, of any abuse or adversity themselves, but are personally or professionally supporting survivors. So that includes like you with the work you're doing. It includes the police officers who are, you know, investigating these crimes. It includes, you know, the the, the, the medical staff. It includes like the people at NAPAC who answer the phone. And you, some people do have experience of either abuse or some adversities. Some don't. 
but it's that that empathy being able to empathize with survivors and wanting to you know do something to support them um and you know taking those actions and steps because it shouldn't i mean one of the things i feel quite strongly about is it shouldn't just be survivors who have to advocate for themselves because that also then puts the onus on you being a disclosed survivor and no one should be in the position where they have to disclose because it's such a personal thing and it's also it can be quite misleading because there are some um, adversities and abuses I experienced that I didn't recognize even doing the work I do until a few years ago and I've been a disclosed survivor for 20 years you know 30 years now crikey what happens when you have a birthday um but you know it's been 30 years i've been disclosed about what happened to me but again what i was disclosed about was the most obvious stuff i wouldn't i i hadn't really recognized there were other things that went on other adversities that actually counted as adversities i mean like for for example i had you know the family members being incarcerated and that had never really occurred to me as a, an adversity in my childhood it was only later on when you know you're having those exploratory conversations and you're like oh wow that's that's me that that's that's me too so i think sometimes there's like a, an ongoing discovery of what our experiences are that comes through from having those conversations which is why i have those three so you've got your disclosed survivors the undisclosed survivors and then the supporters and kind of recognizing they're all people who you know can i'm choosing to or not you know engage with this kind of conversation and how important that can be, especially because of, you know, wanting to address abuse and, you know, support people in a community in that social level, like kind of recognizing how many of us there are who actually relate to these experiences. Looking at those adverse experiences, some of the ones that maybe are not as obvious. Mm. So you mentioned, for instance, a family member being incarcerated. Mm. Um, I'm also thinking maybe in terms of experiencing financial difficulty or deprivation or or, or adverse, I suppose, focus or attention on financial. Yeah. I mean, one of, I mean, there's obviously there's a that the list of what the aces are, but then kind of what what it means in that reality of it. Um, I mean, there's the the most sort of obvious forms of abuse, roughly the the, the sexual and the physical. You know, it's what they call um, contact abuse. And it can be a much more obvious thing. I know when I was having the conversations back when I was, you know, still very young and, like, you know, the, making the disclosures and doing the police reports and things like that, that's what the focus was on. That was the most obvious fine. And it was it was only sort of quite a lot later we sort of explored the other, like the what I called like the contextual things and then recognised those were also the, the adversities. Um, and like you sort of mentioned on the, on the finance, like the finance side, and sometimes with that, there's, I mean, there is a, it's an important to make a distinction between, you know, poverty and neglect, because sometimes they're, they're not always very well delineated. You know, poverty, you don't have a choice. You have, you know, limited resources and you do the best you can with them. Neglect is where you are actively denying, you know, the, the, the essential resources and care. Which you knew that that's a true again, that's why that's like abusive that someone actively makes a choice to not give you those things rather than not having the option themselves to offer them. But I mean, growing up without very much can still be adverse. It doesn't mean it's abusive. But mm -hmm. that's why looking at it from the ace perspective can be really useful because then you're not 
again you're focusing on your experience and your feelings rather than like the perpetrator or circumstance and it could be a useful way of beginning to unpick okay yeah but what was the impact on you and it goes back to that bit about not competing and comparing but sharing experiences because you begin to understand yeah that was really tough for me growing up doesn't mean anyone was actively trying to hurt you if you grew up without much money and much resource and had to you know make do with you know really minimal things but that can still have impacted you especially if there are other things going on as well and you have that kind of vulnerability that someone else then exploited and how much I think that's a really important point to make so I'm actually going to underline that for everybody is that an adverse experience does not necessarily equal abuse Mm, yeah there's not always a, there's not always a, a a perpetrator and that's kind of the difference between adversity and abuse abuse there is a perpetrator there is a person choosing to do or not do harmful you know they're choosing to do those things adversity there's not always someone choosing um like with things like the the circumstances of of, of, of poverty even if like with someone being um, with drug and alcohol misuse in the family, with someone being incarcerated, they're not always things people really actively choose to be doing to cause you harm. They're things that happen that are adverse, that harm us, that cause us pain. But it yeah. doesn't mean that was intentional. And that could also mean not just incarceration, but parents working away. Yes, yes. You know, there's a young child and they see say that dad working away for weeks on end, then it comes home on a weekend if for whatever time scared it is. Or a military mm-hmm. parent that's on tour for extended periods. Exactly. Yeah. You know, if people that like, we hear about it like, the, the oil wigs and things like that, where there's you know there's lots of absence. Or if you're sent away to like a boarding school, there's those periods of absence and you know, the different ways that can work. And that that can you know, it's it's, it's not that it's just always adverse, but it can Cause adversity for us if it's especially when that, if other things happen that are perhaps adverse or abusive as well and we don't have that immediate support system around us because because of these other circumstances you know, one, one of the things i think was um isn't always clear especially when the focus can be on you know the the, the, the better known abuses of like the sexual or physical harm is those really happen in isolation there's often lots of other things that are going on that, you know, an abuser, the perpetrator is exploiting vulnerabilities in that child's life. You know, exploiting the fact that they're able to get into a trusted position to carry out those acts, which means they're also manipulating, you know, the family, friends and the care network of, of that child to have access to them to, to carry out those acts. And kind of that's why sometimes I I like to, to take a step away from, you know, what the, the what the act of abuse was and think about that from that, that survivor, that then that child perspective of what else was happening in their lives. Because that might be like, you know, the big bad, but there's other things that were going on that can be harmful as well. And particularly where there's, you know, the emotional trauma and betrayal going on and, you know, if you know, there's, there's people who are away or these other adversities that you're experiencing and that, you know, you're still, especially when you're young, like trying to work out what all these things mean, it can be really, really tough to kind of understand how this all fits, how it all fits together. I think that what also occurs to me is that some of the more 
subtle elements of those adverse experiences. They're not cut and dry. They're not a guarantee and they're not automatic. They're, they're, there are shades of grey that are almost individualised by each person's experience of it. So exactly. much about, I mentioned, for instance, like extended tours, that doesn't necessarily mean that that will equate to an adverse experience for everybody because the layers of experience and how that's managed and what the interactions are, the, the impact on that, that, the impact on the people and the individual experiencing it. Exactly. And it's why when we look at the adversities, and it's like, you know, with the ACEs you're looking at, there's like a whole list of them. It's like, how many do you tick? That can be quite difficult to do because you might be like, well, you know, you might have a relative that went away, but you might be, I wasn't really close to them. So does that count? Or, you know, they were, I understood they were going away and doing a job and we still spoke every day. It was, it was like fine. So does that count? And it's why you end up looking at like that, like looking at them as more as a, that holistic, your holistic experience and kind of recognizing those bits weren't necessarily bad, but they also added up to, you know, like what your experiences were as you were growing up and, you know, the, the choices you had and the things you were exposed to and the way, you know, your options for managing those. Because if, you know, someone was away, maybe they're then not someone who you have the option to disclose to if something bad happens. In, you know, kind of just being aware of those, those things and the way it impacts you. It's not like that is in and of itself a bad thing. It's not like that. It's not black and white in that way. I think for some types of abuse, it's quite obviously black or white. Yeah. But even then, within the nuances of that experience, especially when we look at, for example, the sexual abuse, we look at grooming. I remember when I first tried to disclose my own experience, I cut off some of it because I thought, well, it only counts when the first time I was raped. The other stuff that happened before that, I'm like, I'm not sure if that ticks that box. And now I'm an adult, I'm like, well, yes, it does tick that box because I know how terrible those experiences were that led up to the other, you know, the, at the escalation. I also understand that that's a manipulative tactic that abusers will use it. Like, at what point do you speak out? You know, where does it cross the line? Especially when some of these, you know, the when we hear about this so much on the support line. It's like, I didn't speak out because I didn't, like, I didn't know when it was like when it crossed that threshold. And by the time you know it's crossed that threshold, it's already been going on for a period of time because of the grooming. And then it's like, well, you, how do you explain that you haven't spoken out before? And there's like an implicit threat. And this is something that, you know, perpetrators or, you know, consciously or unconsciously are very aware of. Like, how do you then talk, speak out about it? If, you know, other people have, you know, the, the, the idea that you'll be questioned and you'll have to kind of justify it and how difficult that is. And then as an adult, you can look back and kind of recognise, well, yeah, you're a child, you're being manipulated as, you know, that there's a betrayal within the abuse as well as whatever the abusive acts are and how difficult that is to understand and then explain. What that boarding fog, isn't it? Yeah, when's it? No. Yeah. Exactly. It's, yes. And it's one of the things that come, I and mean, we hear a lot from people who, you know, experience, you know, um, guilt or shame and things like that as well. And that's partly why it's like, well, because I, you know, I let it go on for so long. I didn't let anything go on. I had no choice. But recognising I didn't have a choice is hard all over again. 
because then it's recognizing how little power and control you had, how vulnerable you were. And that's that's a whole there's a lot of grief that can come with that of recognizing you didn't have that control. And then when you're also then recognizing, you know, the like what other adversities were going on in your life and that well there wasn't really anyone obvious to tell and there were the you know knowing that your family was maybe dealing with other things that were happening like incarceration or drug and alcohol use or unemployment or you know poverty you know that the all these adult things that the adults were dealing with and it's like well at what point do I raise my hand and say I need help and I'm not even sure I understand what's going on or I can't really explain it clearly or I think they'll be able to justify it as me having misunderstood something. And, you know, it's not like these things happen in a way that's really easy to then talk about because it happens in the context of all the other things we're experiencing, which is why I kind of find it a lot easier to, to think about it in that broader sense because it isn't easy. So I had a couple of thoughts there, Kim, and... One was about the the um, or the impact of normalcy, mm. of normalizing our experiences. So as a child, our experience of alternatives is very limited. Mm. And therefore, how would we know that something was not normal if we have only ever had the one experience? So there seems to me that there's a, an impact in terms of that delayed recognition, almost that light bulb moment where you 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 have that moment either as a as a maturing child. One of the things we found from, uh, I mean, this is NAPAC rather than me personally, we found that it takes on average over 20 years for someone to disclose. And obviously within that 20 year average, there's a massive range. That we have people calling us when they're 18, we have people calling us when they're 90 because they want to disclose. I mean, literally, if they want to disclose before they die, they don't want to die with the secret. And there isn't really a, like a, a, a normal way of disclosing, other than it does tend to be delayed. It tends to take time to recognize that what happened wasn't okay. Because even if you recognize that, you know, you know, what you hear about you know, abuse within the family, and that's a ritualistic abuse. And like I said, within um, a previous guest on a boarding school, where it's that it happens within that environment and it can be so prolific or common that you might know it's like not okay, you might know it's harmful. But if it's accepted, if the adults around you kind of you know part of you know you, you don't know where those those lines are drawn for them you as a kid can't define where those lines are whether they'll believe you or believe the perpetrator or if they're part of it if, if they kind of know it's happening or or not or maybe someone's tried to disclose to them and it was like brushed off because it surely can't be that bad it's unfortunately one of the things we used to hear about a lot of people trying to disclose and kind of being refuted and then not trying again because you know, it's so tough, but it's, it, it does tend to take time to come to terms with what was happening was, you know, abusive, was, was that bad. Well, um, I also I want to apply that to beyond the abuse label, to the adverse label yeah. as well, to recognising sometimes that we normalise those adverse experiences, so we don't recognise what's adverse or not. So one of the things that, that maybe was that I was thinking about was, say, for instance, the level of emotional distance that you experience 
within your unit. Mm -hmm. And then at a later date, you go to someone else's house and notice something completely different. Yeah, we, we, yeah, it's like what's that, what someone, like the environment someone grows up with and what's sort of normal. Yeah, it's like if every family's different, all these different experiences, the different things we're exposed to. And I think one of the things I'll just mention here is poverty, but it's it's not like there was a, a socioeconomic delineation of what these adversities are. Obviously, it's just like one of the things, but you can grow up with all the material support in the world and still suffer from that adversity from not having emotional support, not having those kinds of recognitions. Like that's just one bit of, you know, do you have material support? Just one little bit of all that big long list. It's literally one of them. There isn't, there's not really sort of a, more vulnerability just because you have less resource. There is a degree of that, but it's, you know, it can affect anybody. And I think for a long time, there's often misconceptions that, of that, you know, who perpetrated are and who the victims are and who experiences adversity and what we've heard over 25 years of listening to people talk about these experiences is it happens to all walks of life all people and that's probably the thing that most people having you know most of the survivors have in common is that it can be anyone and that you know it, it's sometimes there's a sense of people you know, feeling really uncomfortable coming forward because they don't like you know it's like they don't think it's as bad as or they should have had more options because they had quite a you know, luxurious childhood. It's like, surely it shouldn't have affected me because I had everything I could want. It's like, did you or were you told you did? You know, what was it you needed if, if you didn't have access to, like, the emotional support and care? That can be harmful too. It's kind of being, in, being able to recognise what can, you know, cause what that adversity is because I think the word adversity especially as adults we kind of think of it as something that's challenging you know sometimes people embrace adversity and they go climb mountains great my uncle will not let me do that kind of thing <laughs> probably for the best but like the sense of like adversity is something we conquer but you reflect on adversity when you're a child that you don't really have a way out you don't get to choose what those experiences are and sometimes for our family units as well, they don't always get to choose what those things are. I mean, there's, you know, they might be experiencing, you know, trauma themselves. It can be, you know, parents who are emotionally distant because they're healing from something as well. And this is why talking about out about it can be so helpful because it can kind of break those those cycles. We're able to access support and do the healing. We have a lot of people who contact us who make a disclosure for the first time because they've got mm -hmm. kids and they want to they want to disclose and they get it off their chest. They want to talk it through because they don't want to be emotionally distant or they don't want to, you know, they, they, they fear that the pain they carry could inadvertently hurt those they love. And they want to talk it through so they're more at, at peace and more healed because they want to do better. And it's such a remarkably brave thing for people to be able to do. It's remarkably honest as well. And very, because I think there's a level of ownership in those actions there, which is quite remarkable. 
Hugely. I like that you use the word ownership as well, because it's not about blame or no. guilt. It's not about you being responsible for what happened to you. But one of the really powerful things about becoming an adult and, you know, the choosing to disclose one person or many are having that conversation, how powerful that can be. Could you take back that ownership of yourself? Well, I think that's it because when I use that word, what I'm referencing is ownership of myself, not ownership of the actions done to me. Exactly. And it's, again, that's why I find it so important to focus on the survivor being like NAPAC's work is all person-centered, survivor-centered, survivor-led. And it has to be because it's about you. It's not about what they did. It's not about their choices or, the, you know, even like the, the, the circumstances. It's like just you. How are you? What do you want? What do you need? What choices do you want to make now you're able to make them? And it can be a huge amount of grief that comes with that because recognizing you can make them now Obviously, the other side of that is recognizing you couldn't previously. And that's sometimes why disclosure can be so hard because it's recognizing there was a time where we were so vulnerable, whether it's like the abuse and or adversity. It's like recognizing there were those vulnerabilities and the things we couldn't control that were hurting us. And now we're in a position like we want to make choices and do things the way that, you know, get us to you know what we want and what we value. And it can be such a hard journey to go on as well, especially if we recognise we've made choices where we didn't always do things in our best interest. But we were following those patterns that we'd kind of grown up with, that we'd developed with. And then being able to talk through, like, you know, you want you want better for yourself. You want to make that healing. You want to make that recovery. And it's a lot of work. I mean, it's, it's, it's a hugely brave thing. It's a hugely vulnerable thing. And a really, really really powerful thing to be able to to do it's about breaking those cycles isn't it yeah. and i read somewhere something on the lines of would you bring up your children as you wanted to be brought up yourself and the answer is no then it's time to move on mm. in reading my mm. mind rich because that was that was what was what was jumping out at me from those comments as well was patterns the patterns there and mm -hmm. the choices we make about whether we sustain or break them Yes, and that's one of the things that we that they don't is like the the thing about like abuse and trauma is is how it causes such excessive stress. Like some stress is normal, but those things tend to cause excessive stress. Like you said earlier about that, can sometimes be for years and years, and so living with that like a normal amount of stress for such a long period of time you know it injures us the thing you say about the moral injury that what it you know it, it harms us like you know physical and mentally because you're carrying that much stress and you shouldn't be that you shouldn't have that much stress that's not it's not a normal amount of stress to have so the the adaptations we make to survive under those conditions that keep us safe are not all the adaptations we need when we're older and we get to kind of unpick those things and then want to choose different behaviours. And that's, it's a brave thing to engage with and it can be a really tough thing to engage with as well because we're like unpicking those patterns. And that's why we do like no psychoeducation work because kind of understanding what the impacts of the abuse and the adversity was, the way we cope with the trauma of it. And then kind of recognising how we want to cope with it going forward. 
and that we we have more options when you're an adult you have more of those choices than you did when you were a kid you know you can access more things you can opt into more things and i talk about it as engaged recovery you can choose to engage with this and it is it's his work it's i like think you know you engage with that work and keep healing and whether you're doing it in a disclosed or an undisclosed way that's that's just like a nuance of how comfortable you are with the terms and yeah. you can still engage with that recovery piece in, in private it doesn't have to be public you know it's it's it is a huge piece of work i'm picking those patterns identifying what they are and it's kind of like an ongoing thing when I, mean, I find it hugely rewarding but it's something i'm still i'm still doing i'll always still be doing it i think that's an ongoing process anyway isn't it for anybody yeah. totally there's not like a quick fix coming to terms with it not being something you just fix can take a while you can't just you know we can't make it so the abuse the adversity didn't happen I've, I, I use the analogy of um, I've mentioned my ankle, but I like I broke my ankle maybe ten years ago, um, and it changed my life. I can't go for long walks anymore. You know, it's always going to be a bit weak, um, and I've done all the physio and the healing, and you know, it's it's okay, but it's never going to be like it was before. I'm now living with this, you know, this this injury that's there. But of course, it's a lot easier for under people to understand like I can't go hiking now because my you know I can probably walk for an hour but I couldn't go and do like the really long walks I used to do but people understand that it's a lot easier for me to explain it's a lot more understandable but trying to you know ex explain some of the the things I, I find difficult emotionally it's a lot harder because I'm not just exposing the I got a broken ankle it's exposing adversity and abuse and a, a degree of vulnerability that's a lot harder to put words to. And bluntly, not everyone has the right to know all the ins and outs of my story. I mean, there's parts of it I publicly disclose, but there's quite a you know, there's huge amounts of it I don't talk about publicly. And that's okay. It's, you know, it's finding enough to be relatable. It's having those boundaries about this is what I'm comfortable sharing. I don't have, you know, no one has the right to all the nuances and the detail. You know, that's mine. And it's again it's that, that focusing on that, that that survivor rather than that the the act, if you like. It's that what is it you need? What makes you feel healthier? Where do you set your boundaries? And, you, and learning that you don't always have to disclose. You can just say, I'm not comfortable with that. You know, that's not something I'm prepared to do. I would rather do this. It's you know, finding those ways to sort of look after yourself now and being able to opt out of things you know or cause you pain or harm and it can take yeah it sounds it can take a, a lot of work to do those things especially when you know if, if that's something that's normalized within your friend group or your family or your community it can be really tough to be able to say actually I would rather not do that and not justify yourself you know not put yourself into a vulnerable position where you have to kind of reveal more details when actually you're just you don't want to get into situations where you feel vulnerable or hurt anymore and to kind of you know unpicking what those patterns are often does then mean drawing some boundaries now about what you're comfortable doing and not doing and finding ways of holding those without sort of sharing more than you're comfortable with like not having to justify yourself it's a it's a really it is a big piece of work and often more complicated and i i think um is always easily easy to recognize 
even as a survivor who does this work, like, you know, it's, it's recognizing what boundaries really are. That's one of those terms that gets kind of, you know, shared a lot. But what really is a, like a, a boundary? What does it even mean? So, like, you know, it's, it's to do with what we're comfortable doing ourselves. It's not about imposing restrictions on other people, which would be controlling. The boundary is about what we will and won't do ourselves. So, you know, it's being comfortable saying yes and no to things that, you know, we get to define. And not with having to justify it, you know, knowing what we're willing to share. And it might be like, I'm not comfortable doing that. Or, you know, that makes... <clears throat> Sorry, Kim. I also <laughs> think um, if people do overshare, <laughs> they'll then be with certain people there'll be potential for manipulation again yes. and they could be back in that cycle very much and when we unfortunately we know that um you know to think about domestic violence and sexual violence in adulthood we know that amongst the survivors of um, dv and sv in adulthood you know four times more likely to also have been a survivor of abuse in childhood and it's again the people will sometimes call us it's like it's happening again i need help but it's that idea that there's something wrong with them rather than the fact that there's manipulative people who will see that those, you know, the, the, the vulnerabilities, the things that you're still healing. That's why you think of it as an injury. It's like someone sees it as a vulnerability and that, that, you know, they try and exploit it and they're manipulative. And that's not to do with you being weak. That's to do with them being cruel. And this way you get things like new love bombing, making everything seem amazing, and then the cruelty follows. Because it's like it's like laying a trap. And if you've not had the, you know, the, the, the privilege of being able to develop and learn your emotional boundaries and make be robust and, and have that kind of security because you have the adversity and the abuse, it can make it a lot harder to spot what they call red flags. But it's also then, you know three or four, it, it, there's still more people who experience that who haven't experienced anything before. It's not like the, the cause and effect isn't quite linear. But I think but it, there the are... other thing is, is sometimes if you haven't had that in your life, the lure of it and the, the attraction of it, even though it might mm. be an impossible reality in terms of it's actually fool's gold. It's not really real. But if you have no means of measuring that, but you've seen something that and had a taste of something that was so different, so beautiful compared to your previous experiences, then it can be incredibly, incredibly attractive, and it's almost like magnetic. It drags you in. It's one of the things that we know. That, not realizing and not having the experience to recognize that actually what you're chasing isn't ever going to materialize. Yeah. I mean, it, it also links in with some of the um, like the ways we try and cope with trauma and the ways we try and heal from it. And I use the word healing quite a lot. It's been a long time to be comfortable with the concept of healing. But of course, the other side of that means it isn't it, it's injurious that it, it causes us so much harm and it is something we need to heal from. Is that then a good place to stop for this episode? Yeah. And we I think that leads us nicely into the next bit, doesn't it? Sounds and we'll good. pick this up in our next episode, Kim. Thank you very much. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
thanks ever so much for having me. It's always a, a, a pleasure to talk with you both.